this week on Dig Me Out. With your hosts, Jason Ziak and Tim Minichi. Jay, this week we are checking out a record from April of 1997. You know how we Which got one? here? What do we got? Well, well, we got here because our folks over at Patreon voted for an album. We put up four different options from 20 years ago and said, have at it. It's a it's a it's a bare knuckle brawl to see who can what album survives the the vote. And it came down to a tie, Jay. It came down to Cheap Tricks second self-titled album from '97. Um, the original one obviously came out in 1977, and then uh, also Supergrass's sophomore album, "In It for the Money," came mm. out in 1997. Those tied. I took out the official "Dig Me Out" coin, which has your head on one side and my head on another, and I flipped it <laughs> with you representing Supergrass and me representing Cheap Trick for no other reason than I had to assign them to one or the other, and uh, Cheap Trick won. So instantly I said, Jay, if we're going to talk about Cheap Trick, there's one man we need Mm -hmm. to have on the show. Forget Rick. Forget Robin. Forget all those guys. We need to get Colin Gowell on the show. So Colin from the bands Watershed, Lonely Bones. He's got got a lot of projects. A lot of irons irons in the fire, fire in the whatever the terminology is there. Colin, welcome to the show. Yeah, I guess I guess we'd be remiss if I didn't mention my band Wise and Cheap Trick and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which uh, you know we started about five years ago and we play every year on the Hall of Fame dates, free show under the the name Wise and Cheap Trick and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and uh, you know now they're in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, so you don't really need a band called Wise and Cheap Trick and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. <laughs> that was that was one less band for me to worry about, and I'd have to try to sing all those Robins Andrew parts. Uh, mm. every year so but yeah happy to be here man i love talking about cheap tricks so are you going to be transitioning to the why isn't deep purple in the rock and roll hall of fame and doing highway nah, Star? i'm kind of a one trick pony cheap oh. trick was always kind of my big cause that was something i felt you know close to and my friends did so it was a nice way to stir up uh stir up a little passion around that and have some fun doing it so uh you know that's that yeah that's my one that's all i got excellent well that's perfect for us for our purposes that's what we need. We need someone who's singularly focused on one particular band to um, give us a little bit of context because Cheap Chick has a huge discography. You know, when when I went back to to look at how many albums, you know, they have 17 studio albums, which yeah. is pretty crazy between 1977 and 2016, I believe, is when the last record came out. Um, yep. They've got, besides that, then they got a, some EPs, a lot of singles. Live albums, a bunch of compilations. They've appeared on a ton of soundtracks. So I yep. mean, they're a busy band. They're a band that has basically never taken a break for any extended period of time. You know, there's as they've gotten a little bit older. There's instead of being one or two years between records, now it's like three or four, maybe five years between records. Yeah. But talking about this '97 record, you know, I, I remember, and Jay, maybe you remember too. Um information swirling around about cheap cheap trick at the time um there were some recordings with steve albini i believe that were that preceded this um can you kind of give us like 
an idea of where the band was at with regards to um, they had left Warner Brothers after Woke Up with a Monster and that sort of thing. What like what was going on with the band? Yeah, I mean, really, it was. It's funny looking back at this now. You realize this is kind of pre-internet, so you, we were still kind of all just like getting rumors and stuff. But I mean, they, you know, basically they'd had their big resurgence with Epic with the you know Lap of Luxury and Busted, uh, and then you know it that you know they had their hits, but they were kind of down that road of commercial. It wasn't really them. They left Epic, which was a big deal. They signed with Warner Brothers, and they make a pretty good record. You know, they, I thought it was a little underrated. Maybe not the best single, but they're playing with a major label. They got Ted Templeman. They're doing all the talk shows, Letterman, all this stuff, you know, and the album bombs and they get dropped after one record. So I think they kind of went back to basics. I mean, the, the whole record, they sign with a new indie. They go record with a guy, Ian, what's his name? Who's like, you know, not really that well known. And they really just kind of it, it, it was kind of groundbreaking in a way for a band that was as popular as they were to kind of throw off the whole major label system. I mean, they really did. They really just said, we're going to go do our own thing. And they've kind of stayed with that ever since then. They do a lot of things through their website, a lot of their own releases. So Cheap Trick 97 was kind of like back to the basics and really kind of kind of a new lease on life for the band. And, and the way they kind of just gave up kind of chasing the gold, the brass ring, as it were, you know, the hits and all that stuff. I think they really just kind of went back to, you know, kind of pretending like they were a new band. Is is 1997, the, I've seen like several titles for this. I've seen Cheap Trick. I've seen uh, the Roman numeral two. And now I see... In some places, 1997. What was the official title when it was released? Just Cheap Trick, but I think since the original album was Cheap Trick, they just yeah. people just call it Cheap Trick 97 or something like that, or the new, the second Cheap Trick record. It's not really an easy thing to you know um, explain, but I, yeah, the, not, not, not Cheap Trick 97 is usually what nerds like myself say, just to clear it up with whoever you're talking to. Gotcha. And they also kind of went with a similar sort of artwork look in terms of like it's black and white like the first self-titled album that came out in 77 and yeah um, you know they're, they're definitely like paying a little homage to the to the look of that uh original oh, yeah, release absolutely and it's also you know it was always they were famous because you know they put robin and tom on the front of the records because they were the good looking guys and then you know rick and bunny be on the back and that was obviously kind of their little joke about the rock industry. But in this record, it's Rick and uh, Bunny's instruments are on the front, and Tom and Robin's instruments are on the back. So, right. This little footnote: they they since they're not actual people, they put Rick's five string on, five neck on there and stuff. But yeah, it's definitely a throwback. You know, it's obviously just calling a cheap trick, going with the black and white, and uh, having the instruments on there. The two of two of the one guys and two of the other, they were definitely aware of you know what they were trying to do. Uh, and kind of restarting them by getting away from major labels. They didn't have to work with any producers. They didn't have to live up to any, you know, whatever corporate thing was going on. They really got to kind of just make the record they wanted to make. So let's get into the record a little bit. I don't think I had really listened to this. I think I maybe heard the singles or a couple of songs at the time. Yeah. But in 97, my headspace was not to be listening to Cheap Trick. I was knee-deep in you know, whatever the new Foo Fighters record that had come out that year. And I was into Brit pop and that sort of stuff. So I kind of like, yeah. you know, having been a cheap trick fan in the, in the eighties, um, as a kid and hearing those songs on the radio, I think I, you know, like a lot of people my age when I was in college in the nineties, I did, I sort of went off in a different direction, sure. but in going back and listening to this, this album now, I'm sort of surprised with maybe I shouldn't be, because there was always 
<laughs> albums in the 90s that were surprised which singles got chosen. It says that the first single released was Say Goodbye. Yeah. Which I thought that was an odd choice considering some of the other songs on the on the record. Yep. And then that was followed by Baby No More and Carnival Game. So let me ask you guys, yep. were you surprised by those choices? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, speaking for myself, I, I, I have a little story like when we got an advanced copy, we were coming back from some show or something. This is Watership was playing like crazy. And someone had left us an advanced copy of this record. And I remember I remember exactly where I was. Like, you remember where you were when 9-11 happened. I remember uh, Mike, Joe and Biggie and Kate used to live above that radio shack right on High Street. If you guys are from Columbus, we get back at, like from a gig at like five in the morning and someone had sent us an advanced copy of this cheap trick record. You know, knew we were big fans. So we go up and we put it in. We've been driving all night. And anytime the first song comes on and I was just like the hair. I got such chills because you know, this is my favorite band. They hadn't really put anything heavy out for a decade. Like I've been defending my favorite band through like the doctor and busted and all these things. And they were, you know, they were cool. I like I love Cheap Trick. But when any time came on, I just couldn't believe like all of a sudden there was this power. Like it just was like. My favorite band is back, man. Wait, I can't wait to play this for everybody. Having said that, when the single came out, Say Goodbye, it sounded almost like any song that could have been on their last five kind of albums that were top 40. So to me, they they didn't quite commit to the new, you know, they kind of picked a single that was catchy. But it really, that could have been on Busted. It could have been on, you know, Lap of Luxury. It didn't have that distinct kind of rocking edge to it. So I don't think it was a great single choice. It was probably a safe single choice. But to the average person, it would be like, oh, there's another cheap trick, you know, mid-tempo power pop song, nice song, but I've heard a million, I've heard it a million times. So I would say it wasn't a great single choice. Uh, basically I'm agreeing with you on that. Yeah. When I re- put this record on and heard the first track, it was, um, I don't remember this record coming out. I, I remember the monster record and some of the records from the early two thousands, but I, I just don't remember this one coming out. So it was a bit of a complete rediscovery for me. Um, I was blown away about, how powerful the chorus is in that tune. Yeah. Um, it just sounds fantastic. The guitar tone is amazing. And yeah, I would have loved to thinking back. I think that would have been a great, it seems like it could have fit on the radio maybe even at that time too. It had a rawness to it and a heaviness to it that could have worked in the late nineties. Um, yep. so yeah, say goodbye. I, yeah. I didn't quite, I think it's a fine enough song. It's just not one of the standout tracks from the record. That's for yeah, sure. Or like, or someone like yourself hadn't heard it. It wasn't bringing anyone new. You wouldn't have heard that and been like, man, I got to check out the new cheap right. trick. You know what I mean? It sounded, yeah. it just sounded like stock cheap trick. Whereas, you know, I thought anytime, you know, some of the other songs, you know, just had a more of a, you know, just, just, just kind of that darker side, you know, maybe it wouldn't have been a safer choice, but it would have brought more musicians. And I think my experience, my little times I've known with cheap trick and I've hung with them, they kind of have a hard time understanding back then that, you know, in their minds, they're trying to be pop successes, but I don't think they ever really appreciated fully how many musicians liked them. So I think they could have maybe, they made a pretty band-friendly record, and then for the single, they chose probably the least interesting unhipster tune to put out there. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, 
Yeah. It didn't help that the label went out of business like three weeks after the record came out. So that's probably why a lot of people didn't hear it. Yeah. So uh, maybe that maybe they would have handled things differently if they would have known they were only going to have one shot at this thing, you know, um, you know, in retrospect. And then the follow up single is like the complete opposite in terms of, you know, you have like you mentioned, you have like a sort of a little bit of a milk toast song with with uh, say goodbye and then you go to baby no more which is you know the com- yeah. complete just different opposite sound it's um it felt like they were trying to be a little too heavy not f- heavy but fast with that song i don't think of cheap trick as being a band that plays like punk yeah. tempos yeah um, which is what that song kind of is i think of them as having like that just that great groove that they are able to find on, on so many you know 70s and 80s classic songs which i kind of yep. feel like they they hit that with a couple of the tunes i think like um one of the tracks that i was surprised wasn't a single even though it, it sounded familiar as soon as i heard it was you let a lot of people down um mm, just yeah. a great like dark but extremely catchy song i mean it sounds like classic cheap trick that song and i I'm totally shocked that that wasn't one of the three singles that they picked. Yeah, or um, hard to tell the second song on the record. Yeah, right, that was the know, next one I was right. going to highlight. Yeah, it has you know, just yeah, it's got that classic sound. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds like Cheap Trick when you hear it, but in that cool way, you know, like the, not mm-hmm. the you know the 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 lap of luxury, you know, co-writers keyboard sound. You know, the more rock and roll thing. Baby, no more. Yeah, that. I mean, it's an, it's. I like it as an album track. I think it's a great, like kind of mid album shakeup, but that blows me away that they released that as a single. That is not yeah. a hooky tune at all. You know, it's, it's really weird. Uh, yeah, that they would put that out at that point. I don't know what they were trying to do or, you know, I don't know. I, maybe, you know, it's kind of, yeah, I said they were maybe trying to, at that point, trying to reach a different audience or something. Uh, I don't know. You know, I don't even know what, single what you know what shot any of these singles really had on the radio when you're going with this red ant company and you know maybe they're just singles in name and they weren't really you know there wasn't really anything happening behind the scenes you know they just felt like well we got to put some kind of single out you know and i think they only made one video i mean i think they only played say goodbye i know i know when they started doing the rounds like on some tv shows they would play carnival game which personally has never been one of my some some cheap trick fans love that song you know, I just can't get past the line like I have a kaleidoscope of memories or something. It's not I don't it's not my favorite tune, but they definitely played that on some TV shows. So you know, I think the band maybe felt strongest I mean, when they had a chance to promote the record. It seemed like they would go to Carnival Game first when they were playing live. And that seems to be the most blatant uh, Beatles kind of tune. start i think at this point wearing that on their sleeve a little bit more like hey you know that they're the heavy beatles influence they do the sergeant peppers record a couple years later and yeah like yeah i don't the car to me cardinal car, carnival game and shelter are 
just not what I want out of a cheap trick record. I don't know. I mean, they're good enough songs, but like, like shelter makes me think of like nineties era Aerosmith. Like they're trying to like write a big ballad or some kind of like soft rock hit or something. I think my, my intuition on shelters, it may be, it may be, there may be more of a backstory. It might be written about, and I'm not sure about this, but it may be written about Rick wrote it about his dad passing away or something. I, I, Mm. So if you listen, I've always kind of heard it in that context that it's kind of a personal song. Uh, so I never viewed it as really like an attempt to like make a like a, you know, an Aerosmith crying type ballad. I always heard it as more kind of a an honest kind of sad song. And then kind of it sets up. You let a lot of people down. You know, it's kind of a, it's kind of placed on the album, kind of to set up the next song and then the dark thing. That's just my impression. I could be mm-hmm. completely wrong on that. That's just my kind of fandom, the way I've always heard it into my ears. Well, it definitely has a, a like a John Lennon kind of somber feel to it. That's for totally, sure. Totally. I, I like a lot better when they, uh, it all comes back to you. I, I like that mm-hmm. sound for them to be able to do a kind of a shift to something a little bit more down tempo. Um, yeah. Maybe going with more of an Americana kind of feel. I think that works really well for them. Yeah, and you know, you have the advantage, obviously, you know, I mean, Robin Sanders, it can't be said enough how awesome he is. I mean, he is so great. And if you, this album, if you just go through it and you have like, it all comes back to you, which is his heartbreaking vocal. And then you have any time where it's just like this, you know, where it lets a lot of, you let a lot of people down. It just shows you again, the guy can break your heart or he can, you know, rattle the ceiling and it's all believable. I mean, he's just, that guy, I mean, his voice is all over this record and it really, you know, like I said, it all comes back to you. So much of that is just the way Robin sings it. It's such a cool sounding song. And I have to say for us, you know, we, we always review 90s records and I don't know that the 90s are known for spectacular vocal performances all the time. <laughs> um, so we listen to a lot of vocals that it's more about the song, I guess. So f- to revisit a record like this where the vocals are just incredible. I mean, oh, it's, good. I know. it's it's mind blowing. I mean, the range and the the different voices that he has and the ability to kind of get to scream and be aggressive, but still be be melodic. That's really difficult to do. I mean, to not kind of get into like a screechy, you know, kind of place. I mean, he can carry a melody and still have that grit on top, but then he can also deliver a ballad as well as anybody. It's pretty, pretty incredible. I mean, and like even going back to the single say goodbye, you know, it's a good song, but it's I can see where they pick something like that, but you know, just when a guy like Robin sings it so well, it makes it it almost ma- it's it just takes it's like every song gets like a bonus point. It may be not the best song in the world, but Robin's performance is so good sometimes that 
you know, it, it makes it sound that so much better than maybe it is, if that makes any sense. You know, he really, mm-hmm. um, you know, can do, and the whole band can play like that's, that's the other thing about this record is, you know, they went through this phase and more than any band that I can think of that I've liked, Cheap Trick has worked with more producers and producers have really impacted their sound. I mean, other bands like whether it's ACDC or Aerosmith in that era, they'll work with producers, but it still sounds like them. You know, Cheap Trick will do their classic stuff with Warman. Then they did an album with George Martin, which sounded totally different than the album they did with Roy Thomas Baker, which is one on one. And they turn around and do an expedition, please, with Rundgren, which basically has no distortion. It's a, it sounds like exactly like a Rundgren, Rundgren record. And then they do The Doctor, and it's weird. And, and then it got down this road with these producers where everyone, they sounded so different. And I remember saying, Cheap Trick, the only thing you have to do to produce Cheap Trick is just leave the four guys alone in a room and just tape them playing. Mm-hmm. And if you do that, it'll be pretty good. And that's what this record is. Maybe are all the songs great? No, nah, probably not. Yep. But you, they pretty much left the guys to play. And when you leave those four guys to play together, it's pretty great, even if you don't love the song. Like, even... You know, anything on here, you put it on, it sounds good, you know, because those guys can just play. And yeah. I think that was one of the things that made, I think, had resonance with a lot of the fans because it just took all the tricks and stuff out of it and just let the guys kind of be the guys. And it's really, you know, understated in that way. And it was, it'd been, it had probably been, I don't know how many records since they'd sounded like that. So that was, I think that's one of the reasons. It, and I think it still sounds pretty fresh. If you put it on for someone now and played that record to somebody who, who's heard Cheap Trick, or wasn't familiar with it, like you had said, it's kind of shocking. You're just not used to hearing them that yeah. kind of like stripped down, if that makes any sense. And it doesn't sound like a 1997 record. I mean, I, if you told me this came out, this is the record they came out last year, I would have totally believed you. You know, totally. there's nothing about it that's. Yeah, um, I agree. What did you guys think of the sequencing? Because I felt like in terms of where they placed songs, like Jay, you mentioned it all comes back to you. To me, that's like a third track song like you you start out you know if you're making the mixtape you, you start it out then you you bring it up and then you cool it down and that sort of thing like to me that song is buried at the back end of the record and same thing with like eight miles low that's such a cool song and they're on the yeah. back end of the record and i feel like those songs should be way towards the top of the record and songs like carnival game and and shelter and and even like baby no more you like move those back a little bit i just i did not love the sequencing of this record i felt like they put a lot of strong stuff towards the end of the record which uh, when i first was listening to it i was like okay these are good songs but it really got to track five where i was like oh now okay now this is a cheap trip a cheap trick record for me because this is this is sounding a lot closer to what i was hoping it was going to sound like for a 97 album yeah, it's funny when when I was funny as I was revisiting this album too. I kind of looked at it. I thought, man, the last four songs are "Say Goodbye," "Wrong All Along," Eight Miles Low," and it "All Comes Back to You." I'm like, that's a pretty strong last four songs on the record when you start looking at it. And I, I see your point. I've gotten so used to hearing it this way, but you could definitely, you know, maybe move like I said, Eight Miles Low" up, or "It All Comes Back to You," and just, you know, move maybe move "Shelter" down towards the end, uh, or let a lot of people down, which is a great song. Um, you know, I don't know if they were still thinking about it like in album format, like side one and side two. They probably were not. Um, but you make a good point. It, it's kind of a kind of jumbled there at the beginning. It's it's kind of gives you a lot of different things, and they maybe could have come with something a little more cohesive out of the gate. But yeah, I think one tracks one through six, you're it's a little all over the place. It, it starts off real hot, and then 
I think Carnival Game Shelter and you let a lot of people down. It's they're trying to bring it back and then they hit you over the head with Baby No More. And it's like <laughs> kind of abrupt. So yeah. yeah, I agree. And I think Shelter maybe at the very end would be like a nice somber note to end the record on. Like I could see that being like give that some space. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I question the sequencing here. It's it sounds seems a little thrown together, but yeah. I do love that it's forty minutes. Yeah, <laughs> like, eleven songs, forty minutes. You know, it's a pretty concise listen. Again, it's a recurring thing for us. We, you know, we we tend to do records in the nineties. They tend yeah. to be fifteen, sixteen songs long. <laughs> like yeah, that's too many. Nobody ridiculous. Has that many. Yeah, this this is back to the seventies format. It's it's short and sweet yeah and even even the songs that are the quick rockers like baby no more and wrong all along which you know they play wrong all along live still they play some of the stuff consistently but yeah it's like 218 i mean they, you know they, they do a pretty good job you know a lot of the older bands have a hard time things get bloated but this record it, every song definitely has personality and they're not you know it's a nice concise listen i think that works that really works to their advantage because overall like i said even with this um sequencing which i i'm fine with the sequencing overall i i agree with your point it could they now they could have switched it but really with 11 songs every song kind of has a chance has its place and uh you know never it never feels long it feels interesting you know i gotta say that uh bunny really stands out on this record i think some of their records he gets a little lost in in what's going on but Totally. He's got some standout parts in this on this record. It, it made me reappreciate how good of a drummer he is. I mean, right right from the get go, you know, he's the first thing you hear, which also sets yep. the tone of like, you know, it's a a mistake that they he goes back and redoes the fill, and it sets the tone of like, hey, this is a live record. This is us playing, which is kind of yep. cool. But yep. you know, wrong all wrong, I think is great from a drum standpoint. Anytime has got some great stuff in it. Just overall, like his his playing on this record might be one of the best I can think of. And oh, I don't know, yeah. maybe, maybe like the last record he did with them where he's, it's like a really standout performance. Yeah. I mean, he, I mean, obviously they're all, they're all such good players and, you know, and bunnies, I mean, as good as they come. And yeah, I mean, he probably suffered at the hands of the producers more than anybody. I mean, I mean, on the doctor, for gosh sakes, they were using electronic drums. Like who has bunny Carlos on electronic drums and like, yeah. and, and, you know, through the different, you know, epic album like lap of luxury and busted everything was you know stripped back a lot of it was you know it was obviously just producer you know just play this and this and bunny's such an incredible drummer and he has so much personality and you know hey these guys are beatles fans and rock and roll fans it's drums and vocals man that's all it is so i think your point's well taken this album it's bunny and robin i mean they started with this is a drums and vocals record and then rick and tom are filling in the the parts but you know that's um that's pretty much rock and roll. If you can get the drums and vocals nailed, uh, it makes everything else sound pretty good. It's hard to go wrong from there. And Bunny definitely, um, you know, really has plays with personality all over this record. You definitely got a big say in it. Now you mentioned earlier about the, the label went out of existence. It, It folded shortly after this was released. I think, three yeah. weeks or something like that. They It wasn't long. I forget exactly, but it was like, you know, and they really worked this album hard. I think they did like 180 shows. I mean, they really, they're such a working band. They put time into this and they were committed to going out and making this happen. I don't know exactly when and out. I'm gearing, look, trying to look around right now. But it says that, yeah, I'm, three weeks. Yeah. So th- this has, 
not been reissued. You know, a lot of albums from the 70s, 80s, even 90s are getting reissued on on vinyl and and getting expanded editions. And this is still only available on CD um, or I I guess if you picked up a a cassette version, you might have got it on that. But pretty much unless you have the original CD pressing, uh, you're you're not going to you know, find this anywhere. So it's, it's kind of shocking considering cheap tricks fan base is so rabid and their resurgence. This would be just such an, such a no brainer. There'd be so, I mean, I just bought, I just bought woke up with a monster on vinyl and this is way cooler. I mean, anyone, this would do well, but who knows where that is legally um, with that company or the masters. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what's going on there, but it, it seems like somebody would do it because why wouldn't you do it with cheap trick, especially just getting into the, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame was last year, the la- the not this induction yeah. list, but the the previous one. Um, it seemed like it would be a perfect time to start, you know, getting into these more lesser known albums, especially from when did so the Woke Up with a Monster was that a reissue that you bought or was that an original? Uh, no, it was a reissue. Warner Brothers, that's the one they did on Warner Brothers. So okay. you know, it came out on vinyl. So a bunch of you know whatever every. 10 cheap trick fans in the then every city in the country all bought one, you know, and cause that, had, that had never been out on vinyl. And then everyone was like, man, when are they going to put out cheap trick 97? That'd be so cool to have on vinyl, you know? So I, I um, I'm sure somebody has the answer to that. I, I don't know. Maybe they're spacing them out or maybe, you know, with red ant, maybe the masters or there's something funky with that, you know, with who has the rights to the vinyl or who knows, you know? Yeah. Cause the next album, which is a special one. That's the next studio yeah. album, right? That that came out on vinyl at the time it was released. So did it really? Yeah. I, gosh, I guess maybe I wasn't back in the vinyl. T- I don't remember. I don't remember. That was kind of when vinyl was its all time low, though. Maybe I just never saw it. Maybe you know that's still when you just go to the record stores. I probably just never even saw a copy of it. Now that I think about it, uh, it has so sold for as much as eighty dollars on on Discogs. Just so you know, so okay, it's a uh, you might want to wait for the reissue. Yeah, I, uh, saying, I can't. I can't say I've ever seen a physical copy with my own eyeballs. But that, like, you know, Rockford hasn't been released on vinyl, so there's there's yeah. a few records. I was just checking to see if, yeah, yeah. the latest got a had got a vinyl release. Did it get? Did they do the latest on vinyl? Yep. The latest is pretty good record. You know, I'm not. I, I thought Rockford and um, special one were kind of kind of spotty. Uh, they started working with the producer Julian Raymond on the latest. Who did that album and this one? the most recent one. Um, and I think it's really made a big difference. Those guys having a producer work with them. Um, that's just a fan, but yeah, I think this would be the big, I think of all the albums that are not on vinyl, I think this would be the big fish. I think this would be the one that most people would be interested in owning a copy of. And it would just, it would just, it just looks cool. And you just want to have it. Do you think it lives up to the, uh, the way that I guess they were trying to position at the time as being the true second record or return to their roots? I mean, how do you feel about that? I mean, that's kind of like, you know, that's, that's to a cheap trick fan. That's kind of like sacrilege. I mean, that first record was so, so twisted. I mean, I can't even believe they got that, that album came out. I mean, like, you know, it's, it's with, he's a whore and daddy should have stayed in high school. And, you know, yeah. I'm not the only boy. I mean, has anyone ever had a debut that was so, and it just sounds different. It's a great record, but it was like something that was never going to sell. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, even, it sounds to people's ears to this day, you put it on, it has kind of a weird dark sound to it, which obviously they knee jerked right, you know, to in color and heaven tonight. So, but you know, I would say, yes, it accomplished what it had where like it got 
me excited that they had done a record that wasn't like chasing around what was hip on the radio anymore. They just made a cheap trick record. Mm-hmm. And I think it kind of laid the groundwork for where they're at now, where they're still, you know, they're still out there doing their thing. They're a very different band compared to a lot of their peers. I mean, they don't tour just to tour. They tour. I don't even know how to say it. They just always play, but their sets are always different, especially since Dax got in the band. Um, you know, they're still out just gigging all over the place. And I know they're still working on records and I know it's been slower recently, but part of that was because they had the falling out with Bunny Carlos. So allegedly they're going to put another album out this year. I guess they've stockpiled a bunch of material, but they had to wait for the whole Bunny Carlos lawsuit kind of breakup thing to get out of the way because, you know, you know how that goes. They had been together for a long time, so it was kind of messy. Um, But I think this album did kind of lay the groundwork that they were going to be independent they started their own website. They started their own thing. And they've pretty much been doing their own thing ever since this record. They've really just kind of like, we're going to play to our fans. And if we sell 40,000 copies of our record to our fans, that's what we're doing. And they've just, and, and we'll go play. And that's pretty much what they've done ever since. Well, I think that's a perfect spot for us to uh, kind of wrap up here so that uh, we can all get to bed on time because it's a weeknight and uh, cool. we'll, we'll have jobs to go to in the morning. That's um, right. So, Colin, what are you up to uh, currently musically? What's going on in uh, your world as far as uh, uh, any new releases coming up or yeah. stuff you're yeah. working on? Well, it's funny. I got all this. I got a lot of time on my hands now that the world doesn't need Wise and Cheap Trick in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame anymore. So uh, <laughs> I'm up. I had like a best of solo compilation come out last year, Colin Gal, Superior, the best of whatever. It's like 18 songs. So I feel like that's in a good spot. Um, and then I have a, there's a single off that called dad can't help you now, which I'm having a video come out for father's day. And it's kind of about watching your kid play baseball. And I'm excited about that. That's the solo thing. Watershed's got a new record we've been working on that we're going to get done at some point. We just haven't been on it as much because Joe actually right now is writing a book about Ryan Adams and unauthorized and it's good. It's due. He's got to get it done in August. So Watershed's got something in the can. We're going to play a few shows this summer and then eventually get that out. And then I kind of revived an, an old band of mine called the League Bowlers. That's what I've been working on, reissuing this old League Bowlers record with bonus tracks. So those are the three. And that's more kind of a roots rock thing that I, I, I did in the early 2000s and with some different guys. And it's kind of fun. So those are probably the three things. The two things coming up will be a league bowlers, um, some balls, deluxe reissue, and then a new, a full watershed full length, you know, maybe by the end of this year. Cause we've got a lot recorded. We just really have to just get down and finish it. So that's musically what's going on. And then I have a website, pencil storm, where if you're interested, you can go find my complete cheap trick song rankings, where I rank every song they've ever recorded. And I was going over that. Anytime was the highest off this album at 32. Um, but you know, and Collins Coffee, just come in and have coffee. And I got a bunch of rock and roll books in there. You can stop in and we can just, we can sit here and talk. We can talk about Cheap Trick all day if you want. I'm game. Just out of curiosity, since I have you and I can ask these questions. Um, for albums such as Twister and Star Vehicle and stuff that people might know from the 90s from Watershed, you know, those are CD-only releases. Uh, yep. Do you have... Is there any plans or have there just been discussions? I'm sure there's been something at some point about re-releasing those on vinyl or, or not re-releasing, but get, but doing a vinyl release or um, is that something that's even possible with all of the rights issues that you have to deal oh, with? 
Yeah, we could do it for sure. Uh, you know, we, we were, you know, probably epic. We probably should just ask. They probably would have done a vinyl copy. I think Hal and Maggie did that. They just asked. We had never even crossed our mind. We were just, we were like, oh, you know, no one's buying records and blah, blah, blah. Um, I would say this, that if we're going to do, I know we want to do some stuff vinyl. And um, I would say we'd probably start with the 5th of July. I mean, that would probably be the first one. And then we'd probably do the Mort Hurts. Those would probably be the two with Tim we would do before we would probably go back and do any of the 90s stuff. Um just because we just like those records more, <laughs> you know, and maybe even brick and mortar, the last one um, that would probably, I would guess, I know, I know priority wise that we would do fifth of July first and more it hurts second. And then we just go to other things, but those would be the two we we've talked about doing fifth of July. And it's mostly just a matter of us, just mostly a matter of just biggie uh, getting it done. Cause I think we all want to do it, but yes, we can get the right. So the Epic one would be a little tricky, but you know what? They wouldn't care and we could do it. I'm sure. I mean, I mean, it wouldn't even, no, one, we would, that wouldn't even be on anyone's radar, but that would, that'd probably be one of the last ones we would do. Well, cool. Let us know when you're doing it. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'll definitely, we'll keep, keep you posted. I want to remind everybody who's listening to please visit iTunes to leave feedback on this episode. And of course you can become a Patreon a uh, subscriber at patreon.com forward slash dig me out at the 250 level. You get a review after 12 months of subscription, or you can join us at the dollar level for uh, backstage access. And Jay and I are still working on uh, some other levels. we got to figure that out first. And I think that's about it. Jay, am I forgetting anything? You got it, man. We're done. We're got We're done. All right, Colin, thanks for joining us, and we'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Thanks for listening. To support the podcast, visit www.patreon.com forward slash dig me out and become a monthly subscriber or request a review at www.digmeoutpodcast.com where you can find links to our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages as well as our merchandise store at Zazzle.com.